From the University of Groningen, this is MindWise podcast, hosted and brought to you by psychology students. Let's start science! I did a little, little bit more louder. Let's do this. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Javor. And I'm still Tassos. Still Tassos, our favorite guest, and so far the only one, admittedly, but... That's a low uh, hurdle to jump. We're, we're glad that you stick with us. First of all, Javor and I want to give a shout out to all the students who contacted us and the feedback was very positive. So we're very grateful and happy about that. And there are three points we sort of wanted to mention that resonated with, with the students. The first one is that we as students interview the professors and not one professor, the other professor. So people seem to be able to relate to it more. The second point is that, um, especially with the last episode, episode three, we touched on some current issues that are also related to the content of the course, and people really like that. And the third point, I honestly forgot, but I think that well, was the third point. The third point is that the podcast is amazing so far. And the thing for me is that uh, looking at having um, uh, access to the website and looking at the statistics, it's it looks like it's doing really well. Already we've had more than a thousand listens to the, to the podcast that we've uploaded or you've uploaded. And I think that's really wonderful. It means that people are responding to it very well. And I'm, I'm, really, I'm really excited about the potential of this format. And also we can give a shout out to VIP, one of whose members contacted me. And they said they were very happy to see that we set up the podcast and offer that we can have some sort of collaboration. If a speaker comes to Groningen for VIP lecture, we might be able to do a little 20, 30 minute podcast. That's lovely. Before the lecture. And it's actually going to happen the first podcast will take place on the 18th of May, but we will keep you posted about that. Integrating the feedback that we've got from you, we chose as today's topic for the podcast, open research, open access, which is a word that is circulating all throughout the internet and openness and transparency are certainly core values of science. So to start us off, Tassos, how would you describe the idea of open access open research to lay person but one of the things that i think i would start with when i'm describing the concept of openness in science is also to, to a lay person is to to start by describing the way science typically works today and has been working for for a few centuries in most cases the the cycle of research starts with an idea it's a hypothesis it's what we know as a as an educated guess let's say after this educated guess a scientist would apply for some kind of funding in order to to fund the implementation of this idea testing this hypothesis testing this um, educated guess they would formulate predictions based on this they would formulate methodologies to test these predictions they would go ahead conduct the study analyze the data from this study the end result is always that you publish this in some kind of form. Now, one of the problems that I think we have in science at the moment is the fact that in, in all of these steps, there is, a, um, there is lack of transparency and lack of complete openness in the way that decisions are made, in the way that uh, conclusions are reached, and in the way that uh, information is available to those for whom it should be available. So if we accept that the overarching 
goal of science is to determine what is likely to be true and to sort of increase the amount of information we have and the amount of confidence we have in this information about how the world behaves, uh, we can make decisions, and this goes back to the values in, that we talked about two weeks ago, two podcasts ago, we can make decisions according to this principle of maximizing the chances of discovering truth or, or what is likely to be true. And because there is a general uh, lack of transparency, and the lack of transparency is just an um, endemic in the system rather than um, because there's something to hide, it's just part of the system in, in which it is incorporated. We frequently go against this principle of maximizing our chances of discovering what is likely to be true. So openness in science is simply the idea that in all of these steps you make uh, your reasoning and your available information transparently available to everybody to observe, to scrutinize, to comment on, to play around with, to actually have access to it. And uh, speaking about that, how much research data is actually stored, both with open access and without? So what aspects of your data do you have to show? Well, you don't have to do anything. That's uh, one of the that's one of the ideas at the mm. moment. Openness is not mandatory. Openness is an attitude and it is a, a practice that isn't shared by everybody. So you can share everything. You can share your materials. You can mm. sh- share your raw data. You can share your uh, programming code. Mm. You can share... You can even share your ideas. You can pre-register, openly pre-register your hypotheses, your predictions about a study and your methodology including your stimuli, your materials, and your suggested uh, analysis before you even conduct a study for people to comment on and provide feedback on. The idea is that if we all agree that the point of science is to, uh, to, uh, to understand what is likely to be true, being open about it is a way of sort of crowdsourcing, if you want, crowdsourcing your ability to generate good ideas and understand the data that these ideas uh, generate. So openness becomes like an ethical obligation for the researcher, really, if he's got the opportunity to share his data openly at his disposal. We looked at why not all research is open at this moment. And obviously, for the last decades, there was an obstacle in terms of, well, the technological limitations. You didn't have the internet. Right, so so that's a fairly obvious point. That's only a limitation in as much as you you do it proactively. You can mm. also do it reactively. Even thirty years ago, without the, the the vast expanse of the internet today, you could have open access to your code and your uh, data by just indicating that if somebody wants to have access to your data, they need to write to you, and you will make it available, hard copy or not, in any other way. The internet just facilitated this. It's not a prerequisite for openness. It just made it so much easier and so much more available. The progress towards having all research open is very slow, some researchers would argue. From the perspective of the scientific community, there don't seem to be a lot of disadvantages. However, for the individual researcher, there might actually be some fears. Is there something that you're concerned about when it comes to open research? I think you make a good point that um, the individual's incentives are, in this current system, somewhat against the general incentives of science or the general uh, values of science. Individual researchers, individuals in science 
are rewarded for their personal output and their personal productivity, typically measured by, by the number of publications or the amount of money that they have generated in, in grants. Not about the relative truthfulness of the statements, which you would hope is correlated by the number of publications, but isn't. In that respect, individuals tend to be fearful of, uh, some individuals tend to be fearful of openness because it might undermine the number of publications they have, it might undermine their, their possibilities for successfully attracting research funding, etc. So when we have an incentive system in academia that tends to reward short-term personal gains, and personal gains, I don't mean, you know, actual private money, uh, private monetary gains. I mean career success. Then you get into these conflicts of openness in science versus um, success in your academic career. To put it in very basic terms, academics frequently are fearful of, let's say, pre-registering their ideas and their, their methodologies because they fear that they're going to be scooped by other people. Academics fear sharing their data, their raw data, because they fear that something might be caught that isn't perfect and therefore they're going to become criticized. And um, academics are afraid of, well, actually academics are not really afraid of open access. The fear of open access is the, is the immediate short-term cost of open access, which tends to be higher than that of, uh, of legacy publications. In terms of citations, am I wrong when I say that citations are, again, a very big incentive for... Absolutely. Yeah, and um, wouldn't open research actually lead to more and more citations? It because does. Yeah. If so, we set up a sophisticated system, right? You're and, right. And citations, however, are a secondary metric of success. You can indicate your citations, but if you have 12 publications cited 100 times each versus having 20 publications each cited 40 times, you would more likely go for the 20 publications. Yeah. Tenure track criteria focus much more on number of citation, uh, number of publications rather than number of citations, which would be your um, impact, your age factor. The way I see openness in science is as follows. Open access is great. It's openness in one aspect of research, and that is its publication. It is important to me to make the fruits of the work that I do, which are funded by, private, by public tax money, available to those who fund it, the, the, uh, the public. Yeah. I don't always publish open access, but I always make my publications available on my website openly and freely. So that's my way of uh, making sure that my data are available or my, uh, my uh, papers are available freely to everybody who wants to access them. Right. Even though your your articles are under copyright that is usually owned by the journal itself, you can you have a copyright to your uh, preprint, which means that if you publish something, you have access to your preprint, you can put that on your website as a PDF. It's downloadable, it's freely available, even if it is um, uh, not freely available at the journal. Um, so openness in that aspect is great. Open access is wonderful. It's openness in the publication side. However, for me, it's uh, much more important to consider openness as a much more general principle and consider it in all aspects of doing research. Openness about sharing ideas with other people, openness about sharing material, uh, analysis code, stimulus generation code, stimulus presentation code, 
raw data and all of these things. I don't do this perfectly. I'm still at a point where I'm struggling to find time to incorporate all of these practices in my daily uh, uh, research life. But this is my principle. And I was at a talk just an hour ago given by Daniel Lackens, an assistant professor from the University of Eindhoven, on all of these principles, on doing high-quality research, sharing it openly. And one of the things that he mentioned uh, struck a chord with me. It's sort of the way I feel about uh, science also. Yes, you're going to share your data and somebody's going to also use it to produce work that is not going to involve you directly. You're not going to have personal benefit from me from it. But you know what? Who cares? I have many more ideas and many more data points than I actually have time to do something with them. And given that my purpose in my job is to, to uncover something that is likely to be true, I really don't care if my name is associated with it at this point or not. I'm fairly secure with my job. I'd much prefer doing interesting work that gets out there than work that is associated with my name and doesn't get out there. Right. And your name will still be associated with the data that the other researchers used. You mentioned earlier that you always try to upload a preprint of your paper on your own website. What would happen to the journals if every researcher just set up a secondary access point to their papers online? Well, I think that would never happen. It would be an interesting problem to have, but I don't think that would we would ever be in a situation where every researcher has their own website and makes all of these things, all of these materials available. The other thing is that journals themselves provide a different kind of service or an additional kind of service by keeping all of this material in one location. So it's much easier for me to find information on the publisher's website and the journal's website than it is to go and look at every individual writer's in, uh, private website. In the end, I still need to be publishing there in order to have a preprint to put on my website. So it's not as if their bread and butter is uh, the bread and butter of their work is going to disappear. They're still going to be in the publishing business, publishing papers, and some of them are available openly. And it's not as if this was any different beforehand. You can always contact the author and ask for a copy of the publication even before the advent of the internet. And they had a certain, you know, they had paper copies that the journals would send mm. for distribution. For me, there's still some confusion about how journals are going to finance themselves in the future. If a researcher has the decision to either publish the article through an open access journal or a non-open access journal, that is actually also a financial consideration. Absolutely. Right. So let me see if I can give you a very brief overview of how it works. Le with legacy journals, the journals of the traditional journals, they receive most of their income through subscriptions. So my university subscribes to various journals and um, we pay a subscription fee to have access to those uh, journal articles. At the same time, my understanding is that we pay publication fees as a bulk sum or as an institution when we have papers published there. But the majority of their income comes from, um, from subscription fees. Open access journals, on the other hand, have no readership costs, no subscription costs, but they have publication costs. Some of them. Some of them have no public publication costs either. I think I threw up a figure uh, in my website, in my, not my website, in my lecture, that showed a distribution of the uh, publishing costs for 
open access journals, and there is a very large number of them that have zero publication costs, zero publishing costs, which means that you can publish freely and openly in those journals. Many of the good ones, many of the large open access journals charge um, something uh, in the order of about 2,000 euros per article submitted and accepted and published. Now, one of the reasons why open access journals are in the end and overall cheaper than legacy journals is that they are created with a very particular distribution system and a very particular business model in mind. So their operational costs are much lower. They have men, much. Uh, they, they have less baggage, less operational baggage. Let's say from decades of working in a in a particular system that carry over uh, into the current model. So new open access journals. You can set up an open access journal very cheaply. You need money for some of the costs, but uh, in general, if I remember correctly, I read that the the functional cost per journal article for an open access journal is about five or six hundred US dollars. The functional cost. Functional cost, by that I mean uh, the cost to the organization that publishes this, yeah. the, the journal itself. So if an open access journal publishes, let's say, a thousand articles per year, uh, it's six hundred dollars times a hundred thousand articles mm. or a thousand articles. Okay. And that's the cost incurred by the organization. Some of this will be paid for by, let's say, national grants. Some of it will be uh, covered by perhaps advertising. Some of it will be covered by uh, contributions from the, uh, the authors. And some of it will just be incurred by the publishers. I think that's a beautiful ideal to, to move towards these options. One article we wanted to mention that was published by Times Higher Education at the beginning of January titled Dutch Universities Stick in for Long Fight Over Open Access reflects on the current debate and how realistic it is. So we also just want to quote one sentence, but would like to hear from you if you think that their prognosis is realistic. And it says in the article, in January last year, Sander Decker, the Dutch Minister for Education, Culture and Science, agreed that 60% of Dutch research articles must be open access by 2019 and 100% by 2024. Do you think that's realistic? I have the general uh, opinion that everything is realistic, but you have to work for it. It's not realistic if we don't do anything about it. If we just leave it as is and just ask uh, researchers to publish all their work open access, I don't think we will reach the. I'm certain we will not reach those goals. The way to do it would be by providing incentives, both financial and otherwise, for researchers to make sure that their journal articles are published open access. So as I said, so the costs incurred for a an open access journal, if let's say um, in PLOS One, uh, which is an open access mm -hmm. journal, one of the largest ones, has, let's say, publication costs of about 2,000 euros. Currently, if I want to publish there, I have, I as the individual researcher, have to find the funds to pay those 2,000 euros to publish my papers. And if I have five PhD students and I want them to be publishing a paper per year, that's an extra cost on me of about 10,000 euros. Now, libraries, university libraries or universities themselves ha are starting to set up open access funds to contribute to these efforts. And the National Science Foundation, NVO in the Netherlands, provides open access funds for researchers who have NVO grants. 
and we can I think we can accomplish the the goal of uh, publishing essentially completely open access by 2024 as Decker says if we make if we create the conditions for this to happen if we provide funds and if we provide the right incentives and the right education and one more central figure for the realization of this progress might be the peer reviewer himself. We read one draft published by the Agenda for Open Research, and they stated that the peer reviewer, him or herself, might actually have a big say in that she could decide to not review papers that have not, or whose authors have not decided to publish their articles open access, and therefore encourage a movement also through that angle. Certainly, I think reviewers also have, um, let's call it a custodial role in this uh, publication process, and they can make decisions. There is the Agenda for Open uh, Research, if I remember correctly, its main function is to advance how many journal articles come with open access to the data, not so much open access to the article itself. They consider open access to the article as a presupposition, I suppose, mm. but or a precondition. But their main agenda is for opening access to the data sets. And that is, that is another great initiative, I think. But the, the data sets, the stimuli, materials. Exactly. Any, data set materials yeah. for, for them to be available. But in general, the peer reviewers, the reviewers have, uh, have a strong voice. And there's another initiative which uh, was started, I think I also mentioned that in my lecture, I forget whether I did now. It has garnered more than uh, many thousands of signatures, and that is directly against Elsevier, one of the uh, largest publishers, for their practices and for their attitudes towards uh, publishing. And that particular agenda, that particular initiative, involves peer reviewers not expressing their un lack of willingness to review journal articles for Elsevier uh, journals. So yes, the reviewer has power in this system also. One thing that is always necessary to, to talk about, I think, is the fact that even though open access publishing is, I think, the future and is very promising, and I think it, we will end up seeing a hybrid method of publishing which will include the, the legacy uh, publishers, the old-style publishers, and the new-style publishing. But one thing that we have to remember is that whenever you open up a platform to, to such a broad audience and such a broad range of people, you also have unnecessary, not unnecessary, undesirable consequences. For example, there are many what are known as predatory open access journals that are free to publish on, but their peer review process is either non-existent or very low quality. So we also have to become aware of the fact that open access has a lot of promise, but it also comes with dangers that we need to acknowledge. For me as a student, I believe this to be a very exciting time. Definitely. For me as a researcher, I believe this to be a very exciting time. It's a very nice thing to look forward to. We're still in an observing sort of position for now. Of course. I think it is, as you call it, it is an exciting time. It is a very transitional point. It is confusing because it's transitional. There are many agendas, there are many initiatives, there are many projects. It's easy to get lost. I try to keep track of all these things all the time because I teach I teach these issues. 
and I find myself struggling to keep up all the time. And it is confusing, but the confusion I think comes from the fact that it's it's an ex- it's a it's a, an exciting transitional period, and uh, I think when we get to the other side of it, it will be a better it will be a better place for science. One instance that sort of reflects the change is crowdfunding research. It's unimaginable to perceive such an opportunity a couple of decades ago. Now, for example, we as an undergraduate student can go online and throw in 10 or 15 or $100 into a fund that supports research we're interested in. And through doing that, we connect with a community of like-minded people. We actually connect with the scientists. They invite you to join online seminars, but actually also physical seminars where you meet them in person, discuss the research. And this is just so exciting for, for me to not just, as we just stated, maybe be the observer, but even early in our hopefully long and fruitful scientific career, already get involved with researchers that are, you know, doing professional work in that area. It's just beautiful. Crowdfunding research is something that has been coming out in the last few years, and it is actually also a very interesting um, uh, new development. I know very little about it. It It seems like a good corollary or a good complement to the current ways of funding research. And um, I'm curious to see what happens. Certainly, marketing strategies will become more important, as I observe that the the way you present your research project um, truly influences the number. And your stretch goals, what what your stretch goals are, also Mm -hmm. really influences if you're going to get the money. Which is potentially dangerous, right? I mean, marketing strategies have been always interesting when it comes to attracting funding, even in the current state. It's nice to say that we grant funds for research based on its scientific merit and um, its potential for uh, success, etc. But we know that humans are involved in the process and it's an imperfect process. And the way you pitch work and the way you approach this, um, your, uh, your grant also contributes to your to, to your possibility of success, but we should also keep in mind that it is potentially dangerous to see the the most attractive goodies being the ones that determine what work gets funded. Yes. True, that's highly dangerous. Though I think maybe naively at the moment, what we see with the crowdfunding is that research that is currently not supported by governmental funds is then supported by by the people that are interested in it, and sort of also research niches that are usually also maybe fairly controversial get at least the chance to publish high quality papers and then come to the table and have a more informed debate about it or not if the paper is not high quality or you know there wasn't sophisticated enough p-value hacking going on certainly pluralism in solutions and pluralism in voices is something that i would be in favor of and and crowdfunding research as i said is a good complementary way of funding research exciting times to wrap it up you know what's going to happen now rapid fire questions (laughs) yes Yes. Uh, so our favorite rubric i'm ready for you okay i'll start with the first one and then you take over yeah okay do you think we have freely chosen to record this podcast or was it determined all along i don't care (laughs) that's a good (laughs) response So you're a compatibilist. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, well. 
Sure. What is your favorite documentary and why? My favorite documentary is a movie called Man on Wire, in which... Uh, do you know this movie that I'm talking about? I've seen about? the trailer. I don't. Uh, which describes an act of lunacy, one would say, by a man called Philippe Petit. And he was, uh, is, a, uh, an, an acrobat. He's, um, he's a tightrope walker and a performance artist and just an, a wonderful uh, brain, I think. And in this documentary, they describe a project of his to walk between the Twin Towers in New York mm. before 2001, clearly. Um, and what is inspiring for me, what is really wonderful about this, is his, um, his belief, his very strong belief, his unextinguishable belief that everything is possible, crazy or not, if you put your mind to it. And for me, that is just a wonderful message. And it's, uh, I, love his, um, I love his approach to life. Sounds like a strong message. Nice. Okay, and uh, the last question for today. What music do you listen to when you want to get inspired? When I want to get inspired, I, don't, I think I don't choose music that way. I listen to music based on um, uh, moods and other things. Uh, I listen to two things almost 80% of the time, and that's the Beatles and Bob Dylan. Okay. And the rest of the time I just listen to a lot of mostly these days I listen to a lot of new music that comes out uh, on a yearly basis I highly recommend the latest San Vincent album that came out last year definitely best year of 2000 uh, best uh, album of 2014 exceptional listen to it but don't forget Bob Dylan and the Beatles cool yes alright so with that I hope can... to see you next week again you will nice to talk to you yep we're not sure about next week's topic yet so you can contact us thank you again for listening Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. If you have feedback concerning this episode or want your own questions to be featured in upcoming podcasts, please send us an email at mindwise.org.nl. This podcast was a production of Mindwise for the Department of Psychology at the University of Groningen. Let's start science! I did a little bit more louder.